Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Today, we're going to talk about COVID-19. I've got a lot of thoughts about this disease, and I'm going to cover various topics fairly briefly. There's much more to say, but I just want to get some some interesting, really important points out. We're going to discuss public health. We're going to discuss testing strategies. I'm going to talk about how I am currently treating COVID in July of 2020. And then I'm going to talk about experts and what experts are saying and why I feel so let down by that and why I don't even think people in medicine really can be experts anymore. Um, So to start, let's get into public health. And the first thing that I will say is that public health is so much more important than clinics and hospitals. What I mean by that is that all of the major health benefits that we have experienced in the last uh, 2,000 plus years mostly come from public health. Things like clean water, sanitation, access to good food, fortified vitamins. It's a much smaller percentage of health benefit that actually comes from things like access to doctors and hospitals and healthcare. And so I will say that the first thing I'm thinking with regard to COVID-19 is that when everybody was asking for more ventilators, they probably should have been asking for more public health officials and more people deputized as public health agents. Uh, I think this was a big miss, and I think we're still kind of missing this. Um, I will say that Social distancing obviously works. Staying six feet away from people does work. And wearing a mask definitely works. There's a reason why in the hospital, for years and years, we've been using gloves, masks, and gowns to prevent ourselves from getting infections. It's because they work. We know they work. There's no question of it. I've got to say that having my patients wear masks when I lean over and listen to their heart has been really nice to not have them just breathe out all that stuff directly into my face. That's one of the, I guess, kind of benefits of uh, COVID-19 is that we're just more understanding and accepting that these things work. Now, here's the big issue. Many countries are accepting that those things work. Unfortunately, the United States is not accepting that. I talked to a good friend of mine that's living in England right now. He's also spending a lot of time in France and other countries. And I asked him, what do people in Europe think about this virus? And his response was simple. Everybody knows that it's a problem, and they're all asking, what can I do to help? What do we need to do? This is a problem. We want it to be done. Let's take care of it. I mean, obviously it's a problem. There's, you know, I know reporting is under this, but there's probably over a million deaths worldwide at this point. In the U.S., You've got all these different factions. You've got people saying things like, oh, only the sheep wear masks. Like, what? what is that? Oh, is this a hoax? Is this not even a problem? No, we're, we're experiencing more deaths than any other country in the world. This is not a hoax. 
This stuff works. People need to get on board. I understand the idea that you might not be okay with things shutting down, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean the virus isn't real, and that doesn't mean that the actions that you do don't matter. That doesn't mean like things like wearing a, not wearing a mask don't matter. People need to get this stuff together. From a societal uh, implementation and design of infection control standpoint, there's probably three main routes countries can take. They can take a very pragmatic stance saying, okay, only a half to 1% of people are dying. Most of these people are older in care homes or have other health conditions. We're just going to let the virus spread through the community. We're going to gear up our hospitals, and we're just going to deal with whatever happens. If that's your decision, if that's what you're declaring, I think that's fine. You just need to declare it. Everyone has to be okay with it, and that's fine. Another strategy is locking down, sending people to their homes and having them, you know, isolate. And that clearly works. It's extremely hard on the economy. It's got all kinds of secondary health issues like mental health problems, domestic abuse, increasing dementia in the elderly. But that certainly does work to stop the infection. A third method uh, method is kind of a more intelligent, what I would call more modern method, and that is where you're actively screening people, you're aggressively going after contacts, and you're isolating those who are infected. We saw South Korea absolutely crush it with that strategy. I mean, their, their case numbers are so low, they didn't really have to lock down on the large-scale measure, and it was just fantastic, and I, I just am so jealous of a country that can that can implement and, and execute that strategy. Probably the best best way to do things is to have a combination of two and three. You lock down your huge outbreak areas and you utilize aggressive testing and contact tracing in your non-big outbreak areas and you probably can get the, the best response where you're keeping as much of the economy open, things are functioning as normally as possible, but you're still having low cases of the virus. Unfortunately, in the United States, we have implemented the soft use of all three of those strategies. And I will say that the soft use of those strategies does not work very well. Here's the thing. What I want to see in my leaders is I want to see them pick a plan, execute it, and then periodically revisit it. Say to themselves, how well did this work? What things are not working? Seriously reflect on them be honest about those things that didn't work, and then make changes, as opposed to acting like everything you've done is the right thing to do and never being wrong. That is never what you want from your leaders. You would never want a boss like that. You would never want any person in charge of you like that. I don't know why as an American people we're accepting these current strategies and this idea that someone's just never wrong and that they don't need to actually reflect on on what they're doing. Okay, that's just a short about public health. I now want to get into testing. I run a clinic, Wonder Medicine, and we are doing drive-through testing for COVID-19 with the PCR test that tells you if you're infected now. We're also doing the antibody testing as kind of a fun deal for people who want to know if they may have been exposed to the virus. The hospitals in Boise, where our clinic is located, are taking two to three days to get people in for testing, sometimes four to five, and they're getting people results in seven to 14 days. Let me be very clear about this. 
If you cannot get someone their COVID test result within a week, you should just be telling them to isolate. It is not ethical to test someone if you cannot get them their results back in a week, and certainly it is extremely unethical if you cannot do it within 14 days. Sorry, what I meant to say is that it is unethical to bill the patient or their insurance if you cannot get them back results within at least seven days. For public health purposes, it, it may be good for uh, counting infections, but certainly it's not fair to bill someone or insurance for that. Here's the thing with COVID. Somebody gets exposed, it typically takes two to seven days to develop symptoms, but sometimes it takes up to 14 days making things even more complicated, a lot of people never develop any symptoms at all. And so when somebody wants to get tested because they've been exposed to someone else, it's kind of a sticky situation because you could easily test them and you could catch it before the virus even comes. And so it's like if you test them on day four and they may be negative, but then three days later they develop symptoms, maybe at that time they test positive. And so what I'm telling people when I test them is that if you're negative now, that's great. It probably means that you're safe to go to work and stuff like that with the normal precautions, mask and dis distancing that we all should be using. But if you develop symptoms it, it, in the next 14 days, it's very likely that it's coronavirus and you probably should just go ahead and isolate at that time point. I'm also telling people that are in the same household, you do not need, if one person tests positive in the household, everyone does not need to be tested. They all just need to stay home either from the day they were first in contact with the person who was positive or if they develop symptoms starting 14 days from the start of symptoms. We do not need to be testing everyone in the household and if somebody tests negative in a household where positive people are living, I don't believe that. They may develop symptoms a few days later and I think it's just safest for them just to go ahead and isolate. Overall, I think I've noticed that some people just don't seem to be able to contract the virus. They are clearly exposed to people. Sometimes they're their spouse or their loved one, and they just don't develop symptoms. There's so much we have to learn about this infection and uh, how it spreads, but uh, I think just being really logical about how we're testing and how we're explaining things to people is really important because they're not getting really clear messages um, from, uh, from the top, I should say. Okay, let's get into remdesivir. Remdesivir is an antiviral drug. It's been around for a while. It's been uh, used for other viruses. And people were really excited because it represented a potential uh, targeted medication for COVID-19. I am not very excited about remdesivir. The first thing that came out from remdesivir was a compassionate use article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the second I saw that, I thought to myself, what the hell is that? Why is someone publishing in, a, in what's supposed to be one of the best journals in the United States a compassionate use article when what we really need is a randomized controlled trial. That was the first sign to me that something is wrong with this drug and it probably doesn't work. It also uh, demonstrates something about the New England Journal of Medicine and that is that man it has really been uh, compromised by industry and big pharma and I think a lot of doctors have taken note of that and for that reason it's kind of fallen from the top. It's just recommending things that are ridiculous and certainly in bed with um, uh, people who are making a lot of money off the negative health of, of people. So 
so yeah um anyway the next thing with remdesivir is they they finally you know they run a real randomized controlled trial but they get this signal of a slight benefit and they stop the trial what is that there are two main reasons in my opinion to stop a randomized control trial and that is when it becomes very clear that part of the trial is harming people the other reason to start a stop a trial is when you've got just a blockbuster result the the benefit of the treatment group is so good that it becomes unethical to continue to not treat the control group those things didn't happen with remdesivir there's a reason why you pick a, a certain trial and it's called powering a study you power a study for the primary outcome and for that you need enough patience enough time enough data points when you stop a trial early because you've got a minor benefit what that means is had you continued the trial what you may have seen is that things creep back to no benefit or a null trial but we won't know because they didn't finish it I'll tell you what though if I was a drug manufacturer I would have done the same thing that the people who make remdesivir did I would have seen a little positive and stopped the trial because at that point oh my gosh you can show a little benefit we can push this drug on everybody we can make a ton of money now why hasn't the mortality data from this trial come out yet well I don't really know but I suspect that the second they show that it doesn't actually have a mortality benefit people are not going to be willing to pay the three to four thousand dollars per dose or treatment I'm not really sure what it means but the absorbent amount of money for this drug my overall thought and opinion on remdesivir is that from the beginning we've seen a drug with very modest if any benefit we've seen a drug company that is very aware of this and is trying to cover cover it up and just my fellow clinicians read the writing on the wall like I'm not using this drug <laughs> if you were to do a randomized controlled trial controlling or comparing remdesivir to proning I would put my money on proning all day and proning's free it's a free treatment yes people we have something it's called proning and it's free we need to stop this idea that you have to pay an exorbitant amount of money for something for it to be a benefit. It's just getting out of control. I'm going to break in for a second and talk about the American public and their overall bad health, the obesity epidemic, um, the lack of exercise, and things like smoking and vaping which continue. And what what's happened is that we have missed what I think is the most important conversation about COVID-19. One of the main reasons why the U.S. is probably being hit so hard is because our population is so unhealthy. They are just extremely unhealthy. And this is really a time to say, hey guys, our health matters. Our health allows us to survive in an environment better if we're healthy people and when we're not healthy we are susceptible to disease and our chances of dying become higher we're seeing that when I see young people come in with bad COVID infections the vast majority of them are morbidly obese morbidly obese guys this is a problem 
This is a time when we all should be reflecting on our health. Obesity is an addiction. The sedentary lifestyle that people are living is not amenable with health. It's causing all these other diseases. That is causing our medical society and spending to spiral out of control. And it's really simple. Diet, exercise, healthy lifestyle. This is the big lesson to me from COVID. And for some reason, none of the major, major news outlets are reporting on it. Okay, let's get into what I am actually doing for COVID-19 for my hospital patients. Now, I think that I am kind of a... Um, I've got a full full breadth of experience with COVID because I'm testing people out of my clinic. I'm counseling people that are that are infected with COVID in the outpatient setting. I'm admitting people to the hospital, um, to the med surge units with COVID-19 that are needing oxygen. And I'm also taking care of people in the ICU with COVID-19. I've managed people on ventilators. I've done all of it. And the first thing that... Uh, that I will say is that as far as ventilators go, um, we've done an absolute 180 on it. It was ventilate early before. I, I thought that was crazy at the time, and I'm happy that a bunch of the, quote, experts have come around uh, on that as well. But I think absolutely delaying, delaying intubation is, is so important. When you do have to intubate somebody and ventilate them, I'm not using any of these creative strategies like APRV or anything else. I'm using the same ARDSNET low ventilator strategies. That's almost what I always use. Those things work. They've been proven to work. I think a lot of these, quote, ventilator gurus kind of use a lot of these different strategies. I'd love to have you guys show that there's some benefit to this, but until then, I think you're more likely to harm someone than help them by using strategies that you're unfamiliar with. Okay, so somebody comes into the hospital with COVID-19. What am I doing for them? Well, I'm using oxygen. If they need oxygen, I'm using it. And I'm telling everybody, the respiratory therapists and everybody else, 80s are the new 90s. We don't need to get all these people perfect, you know, above 88%. I'm tolerating SATs in the 80s, and I think for the most part that's a that's a good strategy and can keep you from getting too excited about um, having trouble oxygenating people. I'm giving everyone steroids. I've been giving everyone steroids since the start of this pandemic. In fact, most people with respiratory issues that come see me um, end up getting a dose of steroids if there's any wheezing or any tightness in their lungs. But everyone with COVID-19 that I'm treating is usually getting dexamethasone, 4 milligrams BID, or I'm giving them a standard 40 milligrams of prednisone for five days. And I, I really think that that is, is helping, and I'm going to continue to do that. I also give these patients a, a three-day course of 500 milligrams of azithromycin. Remember, azithromycin is a macrolide. Macrolides have anti-inflammatory uh, properties, and I think that it can also help open up the lungs a little bit. It also represents a hedge, just like it does in COPD. In case there is a bacteria infection, you kind of get a little coverage with that too. Uh, on top of that, I'm proning people. Proning helps. It's free. It works. Prone people. And as far as my uh, oxygenation strategies, I'm starting with nasal cannula, going to non-rebreather, going to high flow, going to BiPAP, and then as a very last resort, I'm intubating, but that's almost never happening anymore. And honestly, it only happened a few times anyway. Um, 
and that's kind of my main strategy. As far as labs go, I think the inflammatory markers that we follow, oh sorry, I am giving people at least a half a milligram per kilogram of enoxaparin twice a day. I think that the prothrombotic effects are real and when people are in the hospital or the ICU those even become more real and so I think a more aggressive anticoagulation strategy seems reasonable at this time. Um, back to uh, testing strategies I think the inflammatory markers can be helpful things like uh, ferritin Procalcitonin, D-dimer, I'm looking at troponin to look at people's hearts, I'm following their CBCs, their CMPs. But really, I think this may be more of a, a helpful kind of battery of daily tests for your critically ill patients. I think the idea that somebody on med surge on a few liters needs these tests every day is uh, probably overkill. And I think that even in the ICU, um, it may not be something you need to test every day, but I think it's important to have a have an eye on them and know when things are creeping in the in the wrong direction. So that's how I'm doing, how I'm treating my COVID-19. I hope that helps you. I'm not using any of this other other stuff, no HIV drugs. I'm not reaching for anything weird. I'm using things which are cheap. I know they work and I feel comfortable with. And I think that's the best way for most people to be treating COVID-19 right now. Um, the final thing I wanna talk about is experts. And I am of the belief that as a species, we're not very good at medicine yet. We don't know very much. We continually recommend things that don't work. We continually recommend against things that we then find do. I don't really think anybody in the field of medicine can truly refer to themselves or think about themselves as an expert in any field. We're just not there yet. I think people can certainly be leaders in the field. They can have spent a lot of time thinking about things and their opinions certainly matter, but we're still well on the drawing board. What I've seen during COVID-19 is the experts be wrong all the time. And it's like, it's like a compressed version of, uh, of like an otherwise what would take 10 years in medical research and understanding, meaning that we're flipping on things in a six-week period where normally we're flipping on things in a seven-year period. The ventilator thing is a great example. Um, all the pushing of the of the drugs for for COVID is another great example. I was reading a, just kind of like one of the crummy, so many of the journals are so crummy, but sometimes they just send me some journals, and I was reading some cardiologist in South Carolina uh, recommending that every young person who's been infected with COVID-19, even if they don't, even if they have very mild or no symptoms, needs to undergo a cardiac workup with a troponin and stress testing. I thought that that was absolutely ludicrous, especially considering the fact that it was all based on his expert opinion. He was also recommending that they abstain from any uh, strenuous exercise for at least two weeks after their symptoms. Again, expert opinion. I can't stress enough how stupid I think that is, how ridiculous the idea that everyone needs a cardiac workup that gets a COVID-19. I think that's a money-making bias, uh, conflict of interest type thing, and that's really bad. Um, how often has it been helpful for us to tell people that they shouldn't exercise? In my opinion, it's almost never helpful. So that is a quick overview. Uh, again, um, public health. Um, 
picking a strategy, sticking with it, and being really reflective and thoughtful about um, any changes that need to be made is so important. Um, the overall poor health of the American population and our susceptibility to having problems with COVID-19 is the next important lesson and probably the most important lesson of this whole pandemic. Uh, there could be worse pandemics or there will be worse pandemics in the future. And the healthier you are, the more likely you are to do well in that setting. Remdesivir, it looks to me like a pharmaceutical company that is intentionally hiding things in order to sell a bunch of their drug at a very high premium. I'm not using remdesivir and I encourage you to not use it as well until they show us really good evidence or at least have a price that is um, concordant with the benefit people receive from it. Um, I'm using uh, things like steroids, azithromycin, proning, and oxygenation for my COVID-19 patients in the hospital. I'm not reaching for anything crazy. Um, proning works. It should be your go-to at this time. And then finally, be really skeptical about what the quote experts say. As I've stated, I don't believe in experts. And I think that the sad part about the coronavirus pandemic is that if a physician was to not listen to anything that was said, in the months of February and March, they probably would have been better off. One final word on vaccines against COVID-19. At this time, there are several hundred potential vaccines, many of which are just starting to enter clinical trials. I will say that a lot of people will say, oh, vaccines are safe. I think that that is a bad way to state it. What people probably should be saying is that the vaccines on the United States pediatric vaccine schedule are all extremely safe. On the other hand, many vaccines are not safe. Many have been gotten rid of entirely. If everyone in the U.S. was to get an anthrax vaccine right now, we would see a ton of vaccine-related issues. And so what I will say is that let's be really cautious about rushing into a vaccine. For the vast majority of people, COVID-19 is not showing that it's particularly dangerous, but a vaccine, on the other hand, that's not well tested could be. And so I just want to put out a word of caution and that we need to be very thoughtful about our vaccines because we're definitely really rushing things right now from that standpoint. And this is the time when serious mistakes can be made and people can be hurt. So that is COVID-19. I try to keep these podcasts a lot of evidence-based teaching base. I try to limit my opinions. This podcast is just littered with my opinions. I apologize for that, but I'm just watching a lot of my colleagues not see the forest through the trees, and I think it's so important that we be extremely thoughtful right now and think about everything we're doing. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. 
They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.